Okay, we're reading from Hebrews chapter 2 today. The author of the book of Hebrews made a point in Hebrews chapter 1 of saying that God has spoken to us in many different ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son and tells us uh, some of the attributes of this son. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, he says, therefore, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make, make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord to us today. 
Uh, Father, we ask now, please, that you would open our hearts and minds to understand your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, are you looking forward to Christmas? When you're, uh, when you're young, when you're a kid, you can't wait to get Christmas because there's presents and fun and excitement. When you get to my age, you can't wait for Christmas so you can fall over the line and have a couple of weeks off. That's what I'm looking forward to. If you'll pick whichever one is appropriate. You know, I've always thought it's a pity that Jesus was born at Christmas time because there's so much on and it's so busy. If Jesus had just been born, say, in the middle of the year when things are so much quieter, we could actually stop and think about it properly. I think that works. Anyway, this morning I want you to really, well, let's see if we can think, think deeply about the Christmas story and what it means. And I want to use three... Well, two really big words and a third word, three words to kind of dig into it. Here they are. Incarnation, propitiation and compassion. Now, my guess is not many of you were driving here this morning, whether you're a regular or a visitor, thinking about, hmm, yeah, propitiation. I'm, I... And yet, these three words, incarnation, propitiation, are part of unlocking three really big questions for us and our lives and where we stand with God. Let me show you. Incarnation, and I understand you, if you're a regular here, you thought about this last week. Incarnation actually unlocks the question about why was Jesus born into our world? You know, you get the the Christmas story. um, You've got, you know, Mary and Joseph and then uh, the wise men. How, How many wise men were there? We don't know. And then, and then baby Jesus, not held by Mary, but baby Jesus running around as a toddler. Because when the wise men arrived, Jesus may have been up to two years old. Really? Matthew chapter 2, you might like to read it. All right. So, yeah, yeah, we've got that Jesus is born, but, but why? And who is it that's actually lying in the, the manger or the feed trough? Why does it happen? And what, is, what does it mean? Or the second word, propitiation. Here's a question that unlocks, and that is, is God angry with me? Is God angry with me? Because my guess is, well, actually, I know, your conscience tells you that you do wrong stuff. And that, you know, the Bible says God is angry when we dishonour him or ignore him. God is angry when people damage and mistreat each other. So here's a question. Yes, we're told God is loving, but is God loving or is God angry? Is God loving or is he angry? And then the third question, compassion. Does God really understand our struggles? Does God really, or is God kind of distant like in so many other religions? God's distant and uninvolved or does he actually understand what it's like to feel weak or tired or or tempted to do the wrong thing? There's three big questions. Now, in the next few minutes, we're going to look at uh, that part of that passage that was read for us in the book of Hebrews. Um, Ben's asked me to speak on Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Okay, so have a look at that. And we're going to walk through that and answer those three questions. Here we go. Uh, Quick introduction to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, not surprisingly, is written to people from a Hebrew background the Jewish people. They're Jewish people who've become Christians. So they've grown up with 
um, as this was written with, with the temple there and the sacrifices and the priesthood, etc., they become followers of Jesus and they walked away from all of that, uh, the temple and the sacrifice. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled it all. There's no need for more animal sacrifices. We don't need a human priesthood anymore, etc. So they've walked away from the whole Jewish kind of religion, or if you like, they've walked to the fulfilment of that. But when you put the pieces together and read Hebrews, what's happened is this. The Roman Empire is beginning to work out that, wait a minute, the Jews and the Jewish religion was legal in the Roman Empire. These Christians, as they're called, or the followers of the way, they are not the same as the Jews. That's a different religion. And so there's the beginning of the kind of the clouds of persecution are coming. It's going to cost to follow Jesus. And there's a temptation, maybe you could understand, there's a temptation to drift back to Judaism, where they won't be persecuted, where it won't be hard to, to be religious. And Hebrews is written to say, no, 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 don't do that. Saying Jesus is the one, Jesus is great, Jesus is bigger, Jesus is better, Jesus is the ultimate answer, hang in there, keep trusting him. And so uh, Hebrews will say, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than the sacrifice, etc. So let's have a look. Chapter 1, Hebrews begins by talking about the greatness of the Son, the Son of God. It says the whole second half of chapter 1 is saying Jesus is greater than the angels. In some cultures, they they want to focus more on the angels, etc. Hebrews said, no, 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 they're just messengers. The son's greater than that. And then we get to the idea in in chapter 2, verse 14, the idea of incarnation. Now, some of you will be right on top of this because you looked at it last week. For some of us, it's a new idea. Incarnation, what's it about? Well, it's a, it's a theologian's word. I've, I've been the shy, I've been, we've been here in Brisbane for a few days and sadly, unfortunately, Brisbane's much the same as where we live in Sydney. As you walk around shops or whatever, you've got reindeer and Santa Claus and presents and all, you know, yeah, it's fun stuff, but it totally misses the point of what Christmas is all about. Incarnation. And what does that mean? Well, the Latin word for flesh, or literally meat, is carno, which is where you get carnivore from, okay? Uh, Carnivore is what? Eat meat. Um, And what does it say? The idea of incarnation is to actually become flesh and blood, to take on flesh or meat. Have a look at um, Hebrews 2.14. I think we've got it on the screen, or even better, in your hand. Hebrews, the book says... Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now, the word children there in the context is talking about the ones that Jesus came to rescue. What is it saying? That God the Son took on flesh and blood. Now, I, I can see that that overwhelms a whole lot of you. You're wildly excited, okay? Why? Because most of us have heard it before. But if you read the book of Hebrews, it's amazing. Why? Because he's just spent the whole of chapter 1 saying, well, let me show you what he says about the Son in chapter 1. He says, chapter 1, verse 2, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
saying God the Son, God, God the Father created the world through the Son. He holds the, the universe together. He's the radiance of God's glory and he is the one that's born as a helpless baby. Now, uh, as a preacher, I have trouble putting sentences together to do that justice. The one in the stable or the outside room of the house, the one who, who is laying in the manger, which is just a food trough, is fully God, huh? born as a baby. Now, how do you know it's fully God? Well, it's not just that in a few places, like in the end of John's Gospel, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. It's not just that. It's right through the New Testament. One of the ways you can tell is this. The New Testament writers pick up particular descriptions of the God of the Old Testament, God the Father, Yahweh as he's called, uh, like in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 45, and they take those descriptions of God and apply them directly to Jesus. Or another way, the New Testament writers say you should worship Jesus. Okay, all right. Uh, now, here's what's amazing. These are first century Jewish people who are absolutely committed to something. Let me show you what um, J.I. Packer, the famous theologian, says. He says this. If, I'll read it to you. I don't know how, you, how good your eyes are. But he says this. Read the incarnation. He says that Jews should ever have come up... Sorry. That Jews should ever have come up with such a belief is amazing. Eight of the nine New Testament writers like Jesus' original disciples, were Jews, drilled in the Jewish axiom that there is only one God and that no human is divine. They all teach, they all insist that Jesus the Messiah should be personally worshipped and trusted, which is to say that he is God no less than man. If you had been there at the right time, 28 lifetimes ago, in the Middle East, in that little village that you can still go to, now full of souvenir shops, but at the time it wasn't, if you'd been there, you could have seen God breastfed. There you go. That, that's what the New Testament's claiming. He came to show us what God is like, to teach us, yes, but even more importantly, on a rescue mission. And what's the rescue mission? Well... Faith explained it so well in the, in the kids' talk. Let me read you from verse 14 again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through, his, sorry, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What's his mission? You see there to destroy the one who has the power of death and set us free from fear. So who's the one who has the power of death? Well, verse 14, the devil. The devil is real and evil and powerful. And sadly does his best work when people don't think about him or aren't aware of it. What's his mission, the devil's aim? To dishonour God and to see people destroyed, although those things are all bound up together. And you see his ultimate power, the power of death. Now, here's something I've learned in the last little while. We think of death as the end, right? the end, but that's not how the Bible thinks of death. In the Bible, the Bible writers explain death as separation. 
Uh, separation. Let me show you what I mean. Spiritual death in the Bible is a separation of your spirit from God, the source of life. And so, you know, God says about Adam and Eve, the day they eat of the fruit, they'll die. Well, they die spiritually. They're, they're spiritually separated from God. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, you're not spiritually linked to God, you're, you're actually spiritually dead. So spiritual death, separation of soul or spirit from God. Physical death is separation of your spirit from your body. And the second death, which Jesus warns about so often, is a separation of soul and spirit or soul and body from God forever. It's that separation idea. And you know what? You notice it says we fear death, and rightly so. Rightly so. Let's, uh, let's have a little bit of culture here. Uh, if you went to school in Australia, uh, lots of us did, some of us didn't, if you went to school in Australia, there's a good chance that you studied one of Shakespeare's plays. Okay? So Hamlet, um, uh, one of his plays, has a very famous soliloquy. Now, a soliloquy is uh, a character thinking out loud, the to be or not to be soliloquy. Okay, you've heard it, right? To be or not to be. That, that is Hamlet himself thinking about life is really hard and we could all just pull the plug, wouldn't that be easier? But he thinks out loud about why we don't. And here's how that finishes. Why is it that we keep on going and people keep on living even when it's difficult? He says, but that the dread of something after death, that undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. What a great line. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. That would make a great bumper sticker, I reckon, and, you know, as people pull up in the traffic lights behind you to have that. On. Anyway, right. uh, yeah. Do you know what? It's true. Um, I'm, I'm pastor of a church. I've been in ministry work 35 years. Um, I'm a relaxed, friendly, easy-to-meet guy, right? That's me. And yet when I meet people for the first time, people who aren't believers in Jesus, you know, I meet someone at the gym or I meet, you know, uh, someone's friend or whatever, and they ask what I do, and I say, oh, I work for a group of churches or I'm a minister or I'm a Bible teacher, very often the reaction is like they've opened the wrong door at Fukushima, right? <laughs> it's like, whoa, how do we shut that door and back out of that? Huh? They almost never say, oh, really, tell me what you teach. I... Now, why? Well, it could be just I'm a scary old bald white guy. Huh? Could be. Or it could be who I work for and conscience, right? Conscience. You mention the name of Jesus to some people and there's a sharp edge there. Conscience. Because somehow we know that if we front up before God and we spend a lifetime ignoring him or disobeying him or whatever, they'll, they'll be held to pay. It's our sin that separates us from God. And what has Jesus come? Jesus has come that through his death, and I'll explain that in a moment, through his death, we need not fear death anymore. In fact, Jesus says, for those of us who will trust him, we'll never die. Now, what does he mean? We'll never die spiritually. Let me show you. Uh, you may have read the story about Jesus and Lazarus in John chapter 11, that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead uh, after he's been dead four days. Um, 
Before that, Jesus speaks to Lazarus' sister, Martha, and here's what he says. It's worth, it's worth pulling this apart in terms of not being afraid. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. He's saying, yeah, you'll die, you'll die physically, yes, but you'll live again at the resurrection. But see what he says in verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What's he saying? You follow Jesus, you will never be spiritually separated from God, the source of life. You need not fear death. And so the Son of God had to be incarnated to become flesh. Why? To be our substitute. To be the one who would step in our place and pay the price of forgiveness. And who has he done this for? See the next verse, verse 16. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, obviously, this letter is written to the Hebrews, the, the physical descendants of Abraham. But Romans chapter 4 says, if you believe in Jesus, you're the spiritual descendant of Abraham as well. So how does Jesus destroy the power of death? All right, we come to that word propitiation. Okay. It's a great word to drop into a sentence, by the way. So all right, let's, let's learn what it's all about. Look at verse 17. He said, therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, brothers and sisters, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So we see what I'm saying. Jesus became a high priest, I'll come back to that in a moment, a mediator between God and people, to make propitiation. All right. Now, there's two words I need you to learn. There's propitiation and expiation. I mean, what? Propitiation and expiation. It matters. It's important. Here we go. What's the difference? Leon Morris was a, a famous theologian. He's now gone to be with Jesus. He wrote the definitive work on this called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, where he took a whole lot of the important words in the New Testament and explained them with comprehensive research, etc. They put out a simpler version of it called The Atonement, um, let, me, let me just give you a quick summary. The difference between propitiation and expiation matters. What's the difference? Here we go. Got the quote? Righto. See, Leon Morris looks kind of surprised in that photo. That was the only one I could find. I'm not sure what he just saw. Like, whoa! Okay. It could be that he just understood the difference between propitiation and expiation. He said, whoa, look at this! Okay, here it is. You ready? Propitiation means turning away of anger, expiation is rather the making amends for a wrong. Propitiation is a personal word. One propitiates a person. Expiation is an impersonal work. One expiates a sin or a crime. Now, just in case that's not... Let me give you an example and you think at the end, oh, that's really simple. Here we go. Imagine I'm driving around Brisbane which, um, if you go near the river, is so confusing. Okay, anyway, I'm using my GPS and I miss the speed camera. I'm doing 12 k's too fast and I get a speeding fine. Okay, bang, speeding fine. No one's particularly concerned about that. I've just, I've broken the rules. As long as my wife doesn't find out. No one's particularly, <laughs> <laughs> particularly concerned about that. You're just like, okay, I broke the rules. Um, um, Premier Palaszczuk doesn't really care as long as you pay the, pay the fine. That is expiation. 
Right? You, you've just broken the rule. Right, okay. Now, imagine you just bought a new Tesla. Okay, all right. Uh, and then you see me walk past your Tesla and I think, man, I hate Elon Musk and Teslas. So I pull out my keys and I scratch the side of your Tesla. Okay. Can you feel the emotion coming? Right. You see me do that, you are what? Rightly angry and you say, you have to make amends. You need to pay a price to be forgiven for that. Well, you actually need to pay a price, a punishment for that. That is propitiation. You are angry because someone has done something clearly wrong. Traffic fine, no one's that upset, you just broke the rules. Expiation, propitiation is turning aside the rightful anger of a person. Now you notice what the Hebrew says? Propitiation. It's a way to translate the, Hebrew, the, uh, the Greek word hilaskamai. Why does it matter? Because people today will say, oh, God is all loving, he couldn't be angry with us. Or they kind of fudge it and say, oh, God's angry with the, the sin. God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. No, no. The Bible says God is angry when we disobey him, ignore him, or damage other people. The Bible's word for it is sin, and God is angry. Leon Morris had gone through and worked out there are 580 times in the Old Testament when God says he's angry that people sin, dishonour him, damage other people, etc., God cares how we treat other people. It matters to him, and you know it's the right thing for him to be angry. So is, is God angry or is he loving? And the answer is both. In fact, you can almost say God is angry because he's loving. And, be, and God is personally angry, and yet God still, what, gives his son to pay the price of turning aside his anger, to pay the price of... The, the NIV will go for, instead of saying propitiation, it'll say um, uh, a sacrifice of atonement to pay the price necessary for forgiveness. Here's another quote from Leon Morris. What Christ did on the cross was propitiation. He has made the offering that turns away wrath and as we put our trust in him, we need fear that wrath of God no more. This means a wonderful assurance of peace for the Christian. In the end, we have nothing to fear for he is, Jesus is, the propitiation for our sins. He turns aside the wrath of God. Now, it's not, you know, a loving son paying the price of an angry father. It's God himself paying that price. Why? He's angry, yes, but it's because he loves us and he pays that price of forgiveness, propitiation. That's why it matters to understand the character of God, a God who's angry with sin and still acts in love. And how does he do that? See verse 17. Right? Verse 17. Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. In the Old Testament, the priesthood were inter the priests were intermediaries. They stood between the people and God. They offered sacrifices, etc. Now we don't have a special priesthood anymore. Or you could say all believers are priests in the sense they can come into the presence of God. We only have one priest now, and that is Jesus, who talks of, he talks of Jesus being the high priest. You can read, chapter 9 goes into much more detail about that. So, why? He offers the sacrifice, what, the one sacrifice that really worked, offers himself as the sacrifice to pay the price of forgiveness as our substitute. 
And that is why, if you're a Christian believer, you need not fear death and you need not fear the anger of God. And it means if you're not, you should really be afraid because God's paid all of that price to ignore that. Okay. Third one, compassion. God does, God, sorry, compassion. Does God really understand my struggles? Now, I don't know if you've noticed, in the last week or so, despite their very best efforts to remain anonymous and uh, private, uh, Harry and Megan have been in the news. Right? I mean, they work really hard at wanting their privacy. That's what they told Oprah and the 300 million people watching, and uh, etc. Prince Harry has written a book called Spare. And uh, in the blurb for the book, he says this. I'm writing this not as the prince I was born, but as the man I have become. My hope is that in telling my story, I can help show that no matter where we come from, we have more in common than we think. So Prince Harry wants to show how much he understands us and has shared the ordinary things of our life. Um, here's a $29 million home that they live in in the USA. Um, they just made the uh, six-hour documentary on Netflix and got paid $100 million for it. Um, I'm not sure if you're going to watch it. Uh, it's kind of that drive past a car crash and you can't help but look sort of anyway. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just wondering if... Uh, if Prince Harry is, he's, you know, doing the washing and, uh, or, uh, or making his bed or, you know, ironing his shirt, that sort of thing, um, whether he's thinking about ordinary people. Do you reckon he's done any of those things? Even I iron my shirt this morning. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I feel a bit sorry for him, actually, but I don't think he understands ordinary people. What about God? You think God understands? Huh? Um, you know, to really understand something, you need to have been through it yourself, don't you? Uh, I know I, I'd met people who had parents that had Alzheimer's and I'd think, oh, that's, yeah, that's really tough, you know, until my mum got Alzheimer's. And boy, I get it now. I, oh, uh, if you've been through it, you get it. You think God understands what it's like to weep when you've lost someone you love or... Um, uh, even just be tired or need a rest or, you know, the, see verse 18. Because he himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, interesting, in the, in the original language, the word for tempted or tested, right, tempted or tested is the same word, parasmos. And you can see, yeah, it is true, isn't it? The temptation and testing, they're kind of, two sides of the one coin. Jesus has been there. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to have, have a dysfunctional family. In John chapter 7, his brothers are mocking him. And we all have dysfunctional families in one way or another. As a kid, as he grew up, probably his first memories are of actually being a refugee in another country, in Egypt. He knows what it is to be the victim of injustice, even flogged, even crucified. He knows. So when you pray, you're praying, you're talking to a God who understands, who gets us. Uh, later on, 
in chapter 4. Let me, let me read that to you. Uh, chapter 4, verse 15 of Hebrews. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Like he knows the full strength of temptation because he fought it all the way. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's he saying? Because he gets us, you can come to him and ask for help, for strength, etc. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you're tempted or struggle or feel weak, and that happens regularly, doesn't it? Pray, for it. Pray to him, ask for help, for strength. Okay, let me just draw a couple of threads together. Lots about Christmas is fun. And I'm, I'm all for, you know, reindeers and Christmas lights and presents and terrific. But, you know, you can walk around our big cities and, and look at the Christmas stuff and not even know that Jesus is involved. Certainly not know the depth and significance of what it's all about. So those three words, incarnation, he took flesh and blood to be our substitute so we don't need to fear death. Propitiation, he paid the price to deal with God's rightful anger. And compassion, he understands our struggles. So come to him in prayer. I'll tell you what, if we can, if we can make those three truths part of us and really understand them, wouldn't we, couldn't we face the future with confidence and gratitude and joy? Let me pray that God might give us that. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful message of the birth of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his incarnation, for the propitiation, the price that he paid. We thank you that he does understand the struggles that we have. We ask, please, that we might really understand these three great truths and so be able to live with confidence and gratitude and joy as we trust him. And we ask this in his great name. Amen.